The EIB Podcast, Financing the Climate Transition. Welcome to this special podcast supported by the European Investment Bank, looking at some of the most crucial issues being discussed at the World Bank and IMF annual meetings here in Marrakesh. I'm John Hay, Editor of Global Markets, and I'm here with two of the EIB's leading specialists on climate and sustainability and how these intersect with financial markets. Hello, I am Ayla Crady, the Chief Sustainable Finance Advisor from the European Investment Bank. Hello, I'm Nancy Sage. I'm the Chief Climate Change Expert at the European Investment Bank. Now, sustainable finance has become a huge topic, a huge market. The Climate Bonds Initiative estimates there have been $2.3 trillion of green bonds issued so far. It's an impressive number, but it hasn't really stopped the climate emergency, has it? No, it absolutely hasn't. It's great news that so much finance is flowing through green bonds, absolutely. But unfortunately, despite all these efforts, CO2, carbon dioxide emissions are still going up, which means that the global warming situation is still getting worse. And the science, the latest science, shows us that we're really quite a long way off where we need to be to keep the climate to a safe level of warming where we can all continue to live you know healthily and well on the planet so yeah we're we're quite a long way off and nancy is that because basically they just that 2.3 trillion just simply isn't enough yes i i mean i suppose there is also some risk that perhaps some of it is not perhaps as green as it's it labeled but the main reason is we're just not doing enough and there's not enough finance flowing to the right things and there's not enough investments in the low carbon technologies that we need like renewables and low carbon uh, transport so the paris agreement which nearly all countries have signed includes commitments on finance, especially to make finance flows consistent with a pathway towards low greenhouse gas emissions and climate resilient development. But what does that actually mean in practice? Well, that's what is usually called Paris alignment. And a lot of times in the sort of private sector, people are talking mainly about net zero commitments, meaning sort of working towards finance flows being compatible with by 2040, 2050, or even sometimes 2060, a sort of a world which is net zero. That basically means where the greenhouse gases that are being emitted are the same as as what's being absorbed by trees and so on on the planet. So we sort of a stable position. The problem with that, well, there's a couple of problems. One is it's not really about 2040, 2050 or 2060. You know, the the sort of future climate is really critically about what we do in this decade. That's the first problem. And the second problem is that Paris alignment is also, as you just said, about the climate resilience goal. And of course, we're already seeing massive climate impacts on people, countries, industries, agriculture all around the world with floods and fires and so on. And so it's often forgotten. And in fact, in a lot of the net zero alliances, they haven't yet really got their heads around, I think, the climate resilience side. But we actually need to be doing both. So we need to be decarbonizing dramatically in in this decade, 
not just in a few decades time. And we need to be building climate resilience to the climate change that's already built into the system. And we're not doing either of those sufficiently ambitiously at the moment. Now, Ayla, do you think there are any parts of the financial markets or the capital markets which actually are coming close to fulfilling the Paris commitment? I don't really think so. It's, uh, it's of course, not everything shows through the capital markets. We have plenty of other kinds of financing going on and, and uh, corporates, for example, they can even finance things through their cash flows. I mean, we don't need to see all of these flows, which I'm hoping that the green bond market is the tip of the iceberg, but I don't know how much of that is under the surface. But the other thing is that even even the, the, the sort of borrowing that is not labeled, it should all be at least not doing any harm to this to this transition to the Paris call. And I think that is the big thing, because if people talk about being net zero, if I'm net zero, I can finance 100 units of carbon emissions increase. At the same time, I do 100 units of carbon emissions uh, decrease. I'm net zero. I'm fine. This is not going to work. So we, we saw last year at the, at the last COP, for example, the United Nations high-level expert group who said that, well, the first thing, if you want to be net zero by, uh, well, 2050, I think it was, well, then stop financing new fossil fuel investments already now. And I think this is important. It's not only the green finance that we see, it is also the other part that we do not see. And I think we just have to stop this. Yeah, I mean, we hear a lot about financial institutions pouring money into green energy and clean technologies. But at the same time, they're continuing to finance, as you say, all the things that cause the greenhouse gas emissions, like oil and gas. And, you know, you mentioned that it was discussed at COP. The International Energy Agency has also recommended that there should be no new fossil fuel extraction infrastructure. Yet somehow, whenever a company wants to build some, it manages to get the financing. Is that a worry for you? Well, it's definitely a worry for me. I don't see that we're going to get where we need to be unless we start paying sufficient attention, as Ayla just said, not just to doing more green finance and more climate finance, which we obviously need, but to stop financing more of what's causing the problem. We need to be honest about that. And we need to acknowledge that at the moment, the financial system and the economic system hasn't made this transformation that's needed. I think that there was quite a lot of evidence that, for example, during the COVID pandemic, there was in the end more subsidies for fossil fuel by far than was going to renewables. So we're really still, unfortunately, putting our money in the wrong place in terms of not everybody, but overall in the global situation. And if we just put that money, which is going perhaps to fossil fuel subsidies, if we put that into things like research for the hard to abate sectors or into more storage solutions and so on, subsidies for electric vehicles or for charging points, we'd be making a lot more progress. But at the moment, sadly, that's not happening yet. And I'm sure that financing the response to climate change involves not just financing the lots of renewable energy and indeed stopping financing the, the most damaging technologies, but also financing all the actors in the economy as they transition from unsustainable business models to sustainable ones. And I think we're hearing that transition finance is a big topic at the moment. Ayla, do you think it's reviving as an idea after a period when people were a bit suspicious of it? Well, I certainly hope so, and uh, I think it's been um, it's talked about a lot. I've heard about it even in in the very recent days. Plenty of talk about transition, and uh, we know that Japan is planning issuing transition bonds 
there's plenty of talk about this in the in the Green Board Principles meeting earlier this year in, in Singapore. And I think it's it's becoming clear now that the earlier attempts, maybe five, six years ago in transitional finance, many of those attempts were a little bit misleading. It was not about this transition from the harmful into something which we can live with, whatever you call this, but they were more like improving a little bit on the ground. So drilling oil with with uh, solar power panels, which was not quite what we were thinking. So I think the market and the thinking has moved on from there. And now, for example, if you want to do something, whether you label the transition or not, you are required to tell a convincing story. How does this issue, for example, help your transition, be it a public sector entity or private sector entity? And then also you have to explain what that transition is. So it's, it's not any little improvement in terms of carbon emissions unrelated to the rest of your business is not going to do it. So I think if we get some sort of guidances now from, from some public sector regulators, uh, legislators, that this is what we think about transition is, then I think that will give a boost to the market that people dare to go out. So I think we need a little bit of safe ground under the feet of people who want to do this so that they can they can actually do this and flag that they are doing this. I think Ada's put her finger on it, hasn't she, Nancy, in that the, the difficulty is really about deciding what is a meaningful transition, what constitutes a sufficiently ambitious one. And yeah. Ayla's pointed to the to the sort of need for guidance on that. I mean, how, how do we make sure that transition finance can be done in a way that is genuinely rigorous? Well, I think we need to do to have some standards, like Ayla said. And I, I think we need to be honest, as she also said, that not every little improvement is transition finance. So transition really has to be a change which is compatible with the climate and environmental goals, because it, it's important to remember that you know we're facing a biodiversity crisis. We need to become much more circular in our economy. We need to deal with pollution problems. So the whole idea of moving from what you might call a, a situation where you're causing significant harm to a, an environmental goal or a climate goal to a situation where you're no longer causing significant harm and you're continuing to improve, that's an incredibly important transition. And there's a lot of opportunities there. But what it also means is we have to be honest about the things which are not sufficiently ambitious or fast enough. So that's one thing, I think. And, and I'm not sure everybody's ready for that. And the other thing we have to do is really be honest about the type of activities that can't transition. And, you know, in those places, people's livelihoods and jobs are at risk. But we also need to then perhaps have public intervention to say, OK, well, what are we going to do in those places where those industries have to close down? And it's not just something like coal mining, which is always what people talk about. But, for example, if we think about the car industry, the car industry is transforming. We know that vehicles are going to be largely electric for road transport in particular. But when you look at the supply chain for those industries, there's a whole part of that supply chain that can go with the transition to electric and low carbon. But if you are a business that makes spark plugs or petrol pipes or whatever, you know, you can't go as part of that transition. So I think it's much wider than just the big heavy industries. We also have to think about all those jobs that are in the in the supply chains as well. Now, natural gas is a classic example here, isn't it? Because it's often promoted as a transition fuel, as it's called, between coal or oil and green power. But gas is, of course, a fossil fuel and involves very large carbon dioxide emissions, as well as the risk of methane pollution. 
another very powerful greenhouse gas. So do you think natural gas should be considered part of the transition, Nancy? Well, I think it depends what industry you're talking about. So if we're talking about power generation, electricity generation, it is not part of the transition. It really isn't. That is a myth. We know how to produce electricity in a way that's low emissions. We need more storage. We need more transmission networks, but we know how to do it. And we just need to put a lot more effort into that. And we need to be closing down coal-fired power stations. But we don't have the space left in the atmosphere for wasting any of that uh, with emissions from gas-fired power. However, when you're looking at some other industries or some other uses of gas, there's still a place for gas. So, for example, if you're looking at heating of buildings, I think that, you know, it, very efficient gas boilers are, are still, in many cases, part of that important transition. If you're looking at some heavy industry where gas is, is part of the industry, they may still be needing to use gas as part of the transition. But in the power sector, it really isn't, I'm afraid. Yes, and if I may add, uh, the, this power sector, one, one hears this repeatedly, that we need to use gas instead of uh, coal. And it's a bit, as, as uh, our previous uh, chair of the of the platform for sustainable finance, Nathan Fabian, said, when you talk about transition, you need to know by when and to where you are transitioning. And this is very important. And it's it's like gas, talking about gas now as a, as a, as a, as a power uh, source, to me, it's like if I say that I need to lose 10 kilos very quickly and I'm doing that by eating only half a pizza and only half a chocolate cake every day. So you might tell me that, Ella, maybe it's better not to touch those things at, at all if you need to do it quickly. And this is the same. Uh, we, we don't have time with this gas. It's only marginally better. So let's just call it a day and, and uh, put that discussion to bed gradually. Now, you've touched already on on the question of the just transition. And it's obviously very important to make sure that the low carbon transition doesn't cause massive economic disruption or hardship. So how, as a society and as financial institutions, can we work on this issue of making sure that the just transition is a reality and not just a slogan? Well, I think that there's a real partnership needed here between public and private. We need governments, we need regions to be aware where are the jobs that are going to be at risk. And pretending that they're not at risk is, is not going to help anybody because it could be that some of these changes will happen quicker than we even realise. And then, you know, whole parts of our communities might find themselves without, without incomes, without livelihoods. So you really do need proactively to identify and then you need to start to think about, well, how can you help support them to have livelihoods and jobs uh, coming from other, you know, industries, whether it's green industries, whatever it is, but jobs for the future. And there's a lot that the public sector can do. And I talked earlier about supply chains. I mean, I think for big corporates, uh, the issue of thinking about what the impact, social impact is of the changes that they're making is also important. And for us at the EIB, we, we also want to support that. So we have quite a proactive stance towards just transition where we're looking at supporting things like education, looking at different job creation and all sorts of other things that we can try and help regions and cities that are trying to get ahead of this, ahead of this risk. And Ayla, it's unfortunately all too clear that we need to make huge adjustments to adapt to climate change as well, isn't it? Because many of its effects are with us already and they're likely to get worse. But the problem with adaptation projects often is that many of them don't produce any revenue. If you think about flood defences and things like that, 
So how can these projects be made bankable? And do you think they could ever be attractive to the private sector? Or will it always have to be development banks that have to do the heavy lifting? Uh, it's a good question, and I'm not a project finance expert, but of course, if you have investments which need to be done, but which do not generate cash flows, it's a difficult sell to the to the private sector. I mean, they, they, they need that cash flow to come at some stage. First of all, I mean, it can, of course, be a very good use of proceeds for the public sector in their green and, and social and sustainability bond issues, and they can flag that they do this, this kind of resilience work, which is absolutely needed. If it's something where you can charge a fee, you can sell it to the private sector, basically, but it depends very much on the nature of it. Yeah, I'd like to come in and add something there, though. I do think that there's a great opportunity for the private sector to come in in what we call enabling activities. So activities that enable adaptation in other sectors. We all know we need innovation in low carbon technologies, but we also need innovation in adaptation. So solutions for making things more resilient services and technologies which will help with mapping of risks with early warning systems with drought resistant seeds with water reutilization systems and there there's a huge potential i think for the private sector to come in and be investing in in these enabling activities and and there are some quite innovative funds out there that are doing that already but i think that there's a great opportunity for a lot more to be done in that area now, I think a question that a lot of people will be thinking about is that finance professionals, policymakers, businesses are all struggling to get used to the idea of decarbonisation. But now more and more people are realising that they also need to think about nature and biodiversity. It's easy to understand that we need to protect habitats, trees, freshwater and so on. But how can organisations actually begin to tackle this systematically when the issues are so complex and daunting? Well, yes, it, we're facing a dual emergency and it isn't easy. I think one of the things we have to be clear about is that, you know, nature and biodiversity is not a nice to have. And it's not good enough to be just sort of compensating whatever you're doing by planting a few extra trees. We really need to take a much more proactive sort of biodiversity positive stance. We need to get the private sector on board with that and really be thinking everywhere we can, every investment that's happening, can we not just compensate, but can we instead be building in things that are much more positive in terms of restoring ecosystems, using nature-based solutions and so on, and also valuing nature? I mean, if we look at some countries in the world that haven't even emitted really much greenhouse gas at all, a lot of them have fantastic natural resources. And we talk a lot about sort of the polluter pays and carbon taxes, but we also need to find a way of sort of financing and incentivizing those countries to protect the carbon six and protect the biodiversity. And I think we'll need to find a way to transfer funds from the developed world to the developing world for that, because we need indeed to protect and restore a huge amount of the planet uh, that up till now, unfortunately, we've been mistreating. And uh, I would add to that, that like the first thing one, one would think of is that we stop providing the air and the uh, soil and the and the waters of this planet to businesses for free as their production factors. If you use them, you should at least pay for them. And if you pay for them, you are incentivized to look for alternatives, for how to use less of them or how not to use them at all. So at the moment, we are offering this for free and even sometimes subsidizing those who use them for free. So this is just absolutely shooting yourself in the foot. And then we wonder why people don't change their behavior. <laughs> so. 
Okay, thanks, Ayla. Now, I'd just like to ask finally, each of you, is there one thing that you would like to see come out of the World Bank and our IMF annual meetings this year? Ayla, why don't you go first? Well, I don't know what I want to see coming out of that, but maybe something that they leave behind, plenty of money for the reparations for, for, the, for the damage done in Morocco, first of all. The earthquake damage, you mean? Yes, yes. And Nancy? Well, I suppose what I always hope for when you have all these very high-powered people together in one place, I hope that they're going to listen to the scientists and realize just how urgently we need to act and not still talk about what they're going to be doing in in a few decades' time. So I guess uh, for me, it's urgency, urgency, urgency. Thank you very much. Well, it's been great to hear from you both. A very interesting conversation. Thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you. Bye-bye.